Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to be joined today by a very special co-host. This is actually the person who first gave me the book, Buddha's Brain, to read, and then started sending me links to this great podcast, Being Well, which features our guest today and his son. So it's a special treat for me to introduce my eldest, Savannah Nathan. Savannah, so cool to be doing this with you, with the very person who introduced me to our guest's work. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty great. I mean, this is this is just as cool for me as it as it is for you, Dad, and hopefully for you too, Rick. <laughs> we'll see as as the conversation moves along. But I'm doing doing very well. And yes, my name is Savannah, and I use they/them pronouns. Hello to my father's audience. <laughs> Happy to be on the podcast. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Thanks. So, should we introduce our guest today? I think so. Yes. All right, I'll do it. Uh, Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and is a New York Times bestselling author of such impactful books, including Neurodharma, which I'm currently reading, Resilient Hardwiring Happiness, the aforementioned Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. He's lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, and taught in meditation centers worldwide. Uh, Rick is an expert in positive neuroplasticity, and his work has been featured on the BBC, CBS, NPR, and now TPNR, <laughs> and other major media. He began meditating in 1974 and is the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Dr. Rick Hansen, what an honor to have you. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I really am. I've been looking forward to this and the topics uh, that you're going to you're going to cover. And it's a special treat that Savannah is here, and so we have this kind of analogy, I guess, between our my podcast with Forrest Hansen, our son, and and this here with Savannah. So I think it's great. I thought it was yeah. I thought it was yeah. psyched. Yeah, appropriate, and and there's some resonance there. So. Yeah. I'd love to start. I was curious to ask about your background and upbringing. I think I've heard you mention that you grew up in in Southern California. Yeah. And was your was your family religious at all? I was I was just curious about your your upbringing in general. Oh, okay. So I, you know, I grew up in uh, born in 1952, so that kind of locates me in the lifespan. I'm actually in my 70th lap around the the sun this year on the third rock out, which is. <laughs> I don't know, somehow kind of cool. <laughs> and what a long, strange trip it's been, right? Mm. And uh, so I grew up in a very decent, loving, kind of middle 
middle class, lower middle class family in the suburbs of LA mainly. My parents were, I would say, casual Christians. My dad in particular, sort of casual Methodist, not, nothing in particular striking. Very early in my life, uh, even going back to my earliest memories, in the background is this wistful, poignant sense that people are unhappier than they need to be, that there's somehow a certain kind of a fussing, stressing, hassling, worrying that just didn't seem necessary. And I had this felt sense, I don't know why, and I actually think I'm not rare. I think a lot of young kids have this feeling they can't put it into words. Like, you grown-ups are nuts. <laughs> What? And that just kind of set me on my way. And I've never really forgotten that feeling and a lot of twists and turns, you know, ending up in combination of meditation, brain science, and clinical psychology in my work today. But that's kind of where I started. That's where I started. It's interesting you bring that up. I, I was, because you did mention at one point, uh, I think it's in the book I'm currently reading, that you, while you didn't have a terrible childhood, there was a lot of tension, bickering, worry, strain, I think is how you put it. Yeah. Uh, so that's what led you to get into meditation or, or did your interest in Buddhism directly correlate with your meditation practice? Yeah, I think that I always had a intuition of a natural, genuine, realistic kind of well-being and lovingness in our relationships that was really possible with a feeling that, wow, wow, <laughs> whether it was my living room or my schoolyard or the neighborhood, or as I came of age politically in my teens, looking out at the world, you know, 1968, for example, a lot of wild stuff was already happening, um, that the way the world was, was so different from how it could be. You know, and I think a lot of people have a very strongly felt sense. That's what obviously motivates this podcast, right? This feeling that there's a gap between the realistic possible and the actual of the world we share. And then the question becomes, what can we actually do about that? And I had that feeling very much all along. My attention was you know, drawn mainly to intervening at the level of individuals so that kind of drew me towards psychology. I'm naturally empathic. I'm, an, I'm a natural therapist kind of person. Uh, my wife isn't, our son isn't, they're advice givers. You know, it's a different kind of personality. So I kind of went that way. And also I'm not um, a social activist, I think, by nature, while I really respect you know, the people who are. So when I was trying to help that gap close between the possible and the actual, that drew me into the mind and the heart rather than into you know, late stage capitalism and critiques and that kind of thing. So that, that's what moved me. That said, clearly the personal is the political and the political is personal. And the older I get, I would say I both become, have become a lot more peaceful deep down inside. And the older I get, the madder I get at the state of the world. And I've had it up to here. That's uh, that's such a dichotomy. So you've mentioned a few uh, 1968. Yeah. I'm also trying to place you entering college uh, undergrad. 69 went off to. I was skipped a grade. I have a late birthday, so I was 16 when I went to UCLA in okay. 1969. At you know the height of the counterculture, human potential, four major massive changes in the U.S. for the better. You know, women's rights, environmentalism, civil rights, and gay rights. Really, really catching a wave then, and also a wave of cultural change too. Yeah. Mm. 
but you do uh, document that you didn't start meditating until 1974. So that yeah. was four or five years after you started yeah. undergrad. I'm curious. And you just mentioned too, that, that uh, you're very much at peace yet. You're mad at mad as hell. <laughs> An interesting dichotomy. So I'm also curious, um, kind of mixing those ingredients uh, into a recipe here. How did meditation affect your political yeah. engagement? And and how do those two things being, I think you said at peace, you might've used another yeah. word, at peace and mad, at, mad as hell, live in the same in the same entity? Right, right, right. It's very perceptive. So um, let's say with regard to the question of why did it take me so long to learn about meditation? It just was not on the table in 1969, 70, 71, too. What was on the table was B.F. Skinner, behaviorism, psychedelics, definitely, and uh, the counterculture, definitely. But you know, meditation and meditative practice just for some reason hadn't popped up. And for no apparent reason, I do wonder about the workings of grace sometimes. But for no logical reason, I had 12 units to fulfill in my final quarter at UCLA, the spring of 1974. And somehow I just thought to myself, well, maybe I should learn about Eastern philosophy and religion because I knew nothing about it. And there's a Zen teaching, nothing left out. So it's always really useful. Jung talks about this too, the shadow. What do we leave out? Also politically, who is left out? Who is crowded out? You know, privilege, as Tanisi Coates talks about it, means not having to take things into account. What are we mm. able, due to our privilege perhaps, to not take into account? So asking the question, what's missing? Who's missing? What's left out? Whether it's inside our own minds or our working group or our country or our world is a really useful thing. So somehow it just came to me that what had been left out in my entirely Western culture, scientifically rooted, my dad's a zoologist, I was a rational, you know, nerdy, Spock-like kind of person, what was left out? Well, Eastern philosophy and religion. So that just kind of knocked the doors open. When I started reading that stuff, mainly around Zen, um, I just thought immediately, oh, wow, this is really true. Everything's made of parts that are connected and changing and empty of absolute identity and solidity and and ownership, it's all dynamic. And if we get with that program, we suffer less and harm less. And if we resist it, we get cranky and miserable and become assholes. So, <laughs> all right, you know, kind of like forking the road, breath after breath, right? So that yeah. just kind of set me on my way. And, and when I started, I was, you know, I was young and foolish, long-haired, gold-rimmed glasses, playing my wood flute there in the hills above Los Angeles. and. I thought I was pretty cool and you know, I had some training to, to get along the way, which came later, later on in my yeah. life. So anyway, that's that point. But the other question you ask is really at the heart of so much. Um, how do we balance compassion and equanimity? It's one way to formulate. How do we balance passion for social justice with inner peace and not hating our adversaries, mm. even while being appalled at what they're doing. How do we bring those together? That's a real, real, real dynamic. You know, there are meditators who could really use a kick in the butt to, you know, <laughs> get more passionate, right? And come on, what's the problem? There are also, I've known them, people who are very involved in social justice work who are just angry all the time. 
and it eats them up and it's not good for the movement. So how do we bring them both together? And that's a that's a long-term process. That's a really long-term process. And we can we can talk about some of the things that help. Um, for me, actually, fundamentally, equanimity is about not allowing, or more exactly, not having any place inside where greed, hatred, and delusion can land, can invade and, and occupy you. That's the thing. Sorry to interrupt, but can you define equanimity for yeah. us? Yeah. I, we're talking about a lot of stuff, and yeah. I feel like we're you know, kindred spirits here, so I, which I'm happy about. Um, so I, I might turn on the fire hose and feel free to slow me down. Yeah. <laughs> but so what I mean is, <clears throat> so relaxation and or tranquility, let's say, means not having reactions, okay? Equanimity means not reacting to your reactions. Mm. It's like a fundamental far-reaching shock absorber. And a lot, the purpose of practice functionally, one of the major purposes of practice, along with deepening insight and mobilizing love in your heart, is to expand the range of situations and events and experiences in which there is this fundamental freedom inside, kind of on the other side of a sort of shock absorber that is not invaded or controlled or occupied by what um, appears and passes away in awareness. You're reminding me of, uh, I think it's Frankel's work. Yeah. He talks about the impetus, what happened. I, yeah. Did you talk about, I think you did talk about this yeah. maybe in Buddha's brain. Yeah, the space between stimulus and response, exactly. Yeah, you totally got it. And so how do we develop that kind of underlying stability of resilient well-being, which would be a way to put it. And it's really important to develop that kind of inner shock absorber, or I think of it as like a sailboat with a deepening keel so that we can engage life fully and not just maintain our equanimity when we're sitting there in, you know, on the top of the Himalayas in our cave. It's kind of a joke basically in the monastery, <laughs> think yeah. you're so enlightened, go home for the holidays, <laughs> right? How do we maintain that inner stability uh, while being engaged in political work or raising a family, being a householder, dealing with chronic illness, dealing with chronic pain? Um, losing pets, having sorrow for what's happening in, you know, at home and around the world. You know, how do we maintain that? It's something we cultivate over time, but that's the possibility. That's the possibility. That actually kind of leads into one of the questions that I had for you, um, which is how do you personally apply the knowledge that you have in your daily life? Like, of course, there's going to be random instances that come up that I suppose are a part of daily life, but do you have, for instance, like a routine, like you wake up in the morning and you're like, okay, this is, this is where I bring my attention. This is how I practice on the daily basis. What are those practices for you? Well, as soon as I wake up, I think about the five people I most hate in the world. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, you had me for a second there. <laughs> I was like, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a sweet question. So let's see. I would say two things, two ways of answering it. One is, I think it's really helpful to have refuge, refuges that are real for a person that in which they come home to themselves 
and that are supportive and take into account the ways in which we're big scared monkeys, we have bodies, we have a brain with a negativity bias that tends to hold on to pain and stress and worry and take things very personally. So it's really important to have a little bit at least of formal practice, even if it's just one minute or more a day, every day, that people commit to, which could be, frankly, making a cup of tea uh, and just staring out the window and chilling. Or it could be walking the dog or cuddling your cat, right? Or sitting quietly, following your breath for a minute, reading the daily word, uh, whatever it is for that person, which may be situated religiously in an explicit sense, or it may not be, but some form, yoga, Pilates, movement, something. So for myself, I wake up, almost always I meditate, um, you know, up to around 45 minutes, uh, so pretty f formal. Before going to bed, my wife and I do a little bit of meditation together. It's pretty sweet. Uh, I like to read things uh, that are brief and pointed by the saints rather than the theologians, which have a transmission in them. You know, the great teachers bring me home. So that's that part. In real time, you know, I've been doing this for a while, so you know, I could talk quite candidly about it. I mean, the real-time practice first is when I do get triggered to come back, to come home as soon as possible. And so then practice becomes a kind of granularity of mindfulness in terms of time and space. You become more attentive within a half a second to when you're starting to get cranky. And uh, I had a, I took my wife earlier this morning to a uh, appointment she was in, and we talked briefly about her business, and we sort of seemingly maybe disagreed about something. And as I was driving back, I could notice that my body was a little reactivated. I was like, you know how you're rehashing things, and you're like making your case in your mind. <laughs> and the question becomes, I mean, when we're completely enlightened. Completely, and I think that's possible, and I think there are people who in the world today and throughout history have been, it's more rare than an Olympic gold medal. Mm. Complete enlightenment, irrevocable transformational enlightenment. I think that when that's the case, these reactions can't any longer even arise. Mm. But along the way, they may arise, but then the practical question becomes, how quickly can we be mindful of them? How rapidly can we let go of them? Um, how quickly can we come home to our core of basically peacefulness, love, and contentment um, with resilience and, and strength along the way? So, so I'm doing that. Also, I'm trying to maintain and return to again and again an ongoing sense, I guess, of kind of the reality at the front edge of now. Mm. That sort of sounds poetic and weird, but it's under our noses all the time, right? the present moment as it arises. And as you get really close to that arising, you can feel a kind of unity, a non-duality of you know, reality emerging and your own consciousness as one tissue. And when you get close to it, I'm feeling it now just talking about it, you just start smiling. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know? So I, I, you know, that's that's my ongoing edge, and I think for people in their own practice, it's good to have, like I said, some form of refuge where you come home every day to to yourself, you kind of land for a minute or more. Second, it's really helpful to have some real time mindfulness over the course of the day, 
And third, it's really helpful to have one thing in particular you're kind of focusing on in your practice that, that for you is a growing edge and is important and it becomes a little bit of a North Star. That's actually really hopeful because amidst all these things you have no control over about, at least you can be yourself developing a little bit further every day on your own path of awakening. So when you say having one thing to focus on, do you mean, for example, loving kindness or forgiveness or like a subject or a virtue like that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that would be a great example. Um, the example I gave partly, you know, just I, for myself is that capacity to stay in touch continuously, which is for me a growing edge. I'm not stably there. People, I know people who really are, but but I'm not yet there, but still it's my growing edge to stay in touch, you know, moment to moment with the underlying, I don't the field of everything, you know, the ground of all, right? So that's for me personally. I would actually say also I've, I've really taken on letting go of being critical. Mm. And so it gets very interesting. How do you be passionate about the welfare of others and discern injustice and even evil? How do you do that? while disengaging from self-righteous, critical, angry machinery in your mind. So that was one. When I was younger, as I've written about, I entered a you know college, young adulthood, with what felt like an enormous hole in my heart, which had lacked a lot of normal so-called social supplies of being included and valued in groups and also by my parents. And so I deliberately spent years taking in the good of feeling uh, wanted, liked, loved, appreciated, you know, cherished and so forth, gradually filling that hole in my heart. So mm. what you're working on might vary. Some people might be the early days of their sobriety. They're really going after that. Or for another person maybe who has a um, disposition that kind of moves into the warrior mode. Maybe, you know, the the red character, let's say, you know, inside out, we may have been talking I about. I identify very well. <laughs> yeah, what might be a balance for that? Like, that's a beautiful thing. The tribe needs all temperaments. Mm. The tribe needs all types. And what might be a good balance for that, such as, uh, you know, let's say a real-time awareness of the softer, more vulnerable feelings that could underlie what might be an initially warrior-like or warlike or angry type of uh, response, such as feelings of hurt or anxiety, maybe. I'm just making all this up. I'm just spitballing here. Those would be examples. So one of the things that struck me in reading a lot of your work, I was concerned before I really dove in that I would have to use the shopping cart method a lot more. I, actually, I can't, meaning, okay, I'm going to dispense with that because that uh, is at odds with my beliefs. I grew up in a very observant Jewish household. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. I became a Christian in my late twenties. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, having been around uh, a lot of folks who have fundamentalist tendencies and even having some myself, frankly, yeah. I really thought that there would be a lot more stuff in there that I'd be at odds with. I, so I, there's this quote that I came across uh, in, by the way, for our listeners, there is such a plethora of material. I went on to rickhanson.net, I think it is. Yeah. Um, so there was just a plethora of essays on there that are available to all kinds of folks. Uh, one that I came across is called Foundations of Noble 
of the Noble Eightfold Path. I think you wrote it in 2007. You said Buddhist teachings and practices are not something you take up instead of your own religion or personal philosophy of life. A person can be a Buddhist Jew or a Catholic Buddhist or a Buddhist. I'm imagining Buddhist Jew. I'm a Buddhist, but I feel really guilty about it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or a Buddhist atheist or not Buddhist at all and still experience personal benefits from some perspectives or practices offered by the Buddha. And that just so I've put it out there. It just might sound like a very surprising point to make or, or might not even make sense to say some of my Christian friends. So can you expound on that a little bit? Well, it's so cool to me that you found what is kind of an obscure essay buried, you know, six layers down on my website. And I would add that there's a lot on the website that's super accessible. You know, I have a program called Just One Minute that's about one minute practices, very quick ways to reset your brain and, you know, lots of other things. Many of most of what's on my website is free. So, you know, all that said, well, you're getting at a really interesting thing. I mean, one, what is Buddhism? Is Buddhism a psychology? Arguably, it's most fundamentally a psychology based on a very penetrating analysis of the mind. Buddhist scholars, as it were, even argue about whether Buddhism properly constitutes a religion in in a sense of something that's about salvation or speaks to something that's um, transcendental, ultimate matters? I think the answer to that actually is yes. I think the frame for the Buddha was ultimately salvatory in a frame of reincarnation. You know, So there was a project that would span lifetimes in which there would be an increasing release of the conditions that led to rebirth again and again and again in the veil of tears, as it were. Now, you don't have to buy that premise to be to appreciate the value of Buddhist psychology, but definitely, you know, to be frank about it, it was in that frame. And also, for me, much more fundamentally, whatever might be true about reincarnation and all the rest of that, you know, I think fundamentally the Buddha spoke to something that I believe is real ontologically in terms of existence, which is language breaks down, but an aspect of ultimate, ultimate reality that is unconditioned, that is timeless, deathless, eternal, not subject to arising and passing away, um, transpersonal, immanent, you know, woven into the, the ground of the Big Bang universe, as a, you know, particularly at the front edge of now, just before now keeps unfolding, keeps boiling into existence, right? And people argue some that, you know, the Buddha wasn't really that, but I think they have to twist themselves in knots to swerve away from the clear language of the early text. And even beyond that, whatever the Buddha said, what's true? So in my case, it's definitely the case that both my view and my experience is that there is an ultimate ground of all that is indeed absolute, timeless, unconditioned. And it sure seems to me to have some qualities of awareness and in some senses, benevolence, love. Now, whether that also involves a personal deity, a personal God, you know, as asserted in the Abrahamic religions, you know, right? Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam. That's a whole, that's a, that's a, you know, maybe. I personally don't, I've never had a 
really strong sense of that myself, but I've definitely had a sense that always just prior to now is an is a it's a mysterious field of possibility, right? That's probably pretty deep stuff. Um, so all that said, all that said, in terms of pragmatic Buddhist psychology, it's really useful to observe craving right now in the moment. You know, kind of leaning into the into the future continuously, uh, resisting threats or being angry about them or freezing in the face of them. You know, fight, flight, freeze. Right or Grasping, greedy, my precious, a lot of self gets in the mix, right? That's another. Or clinging to others. We're profoundly social, you know, clinging to others. Do you love me? Do you love me today? How am I doing today? What do you think about my book? Come on, more five-star reviews for the podcast. Right? <laughs> and, you know, as soon as we kind of go there, as soon as you start to feel that machinery of craving, including subtle, you can feel the pressure in it, the contraction in it. You know, and you can feel the sense, the sense of separation in it. And you just go, oh, what would it take to be free of all that, right? What would it take to have a brain and a body that lives in this world that needs to breathe and eat, is social, cares about others? Um, how do we do that without being hijacked by this neurobiological machinery of craving? That's extremely useful, super useful. I love that the the mechanisms that are or the practices that are brought forth um, within Buddhism and many other spiritual practices, particularly Eastern spiritual practices, can be both practical, extremely practical, yeah. and also so poetic and like touching, truly yeah. like moving in what many, including myself, describe a spiritual way. So. I'm actually curious, at what point in your studies did you make the connection that these practices and philosophies are very closely intertwined with, like, it, basically exactly how neuroscience describes our minds to be working? What, yeah. what did you have a moment where you were like, oh, that made these... I was probably on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> hey, a lot, of, a lot of realizations happened during those times. Oh, yeah. Gurdjieff had some line, I think, about drugs. He said they, uh, they're like a telescope. They show you what's possible, but then you mm. have to walk there on your own. Mm. And I, I thought that was good. Uh, that's a great question, Savannah. I I. Well, I, I can look back and I, I know what I was reading when, and it just seemed clear to me that by, you know, in the mid-70s, it was clear that ab apart from whatever might be a supernatural or transcendental factor, the experiences that we're having, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, remembering, hoping, dreaming, loving, hating, all those experiences must be the result of natural physical processes. Otherwise, we're left with magic. And I'm cool with magic. I believe in magic in some senses of that word. But other than that, whatever that might be, right, we're left with the operation of the body. Mind is situated in the body. The bodies make minds. Bodies make minds in a 
way in 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 relationship with other bodies that are also making mines, whether it's a bunch of squirrels hanging out in my backyard in the trees together, and I love watching them, or human society and all that. But basically, you know, the um, final common pathway of the actual, of the natural causes making this moment of experiencing run right between the ears. Charles Sherrington referred to the brain as the enchanted loom weaving the tapestry of consciousness, right? So that was clear to me in the 70s, and it was clear to a lot of other people. And, you know, that's kind of the default view anyway in neurology, medicine, neuroscience of the time. Freud, wildly, you know, published his first, he wrote his book on the interpretation of dreams in 1899, but he insisted on it being published in 1900, right? Freud was a neuroscientist. He, his first several books were dissecting the nervous systems of fish. You know, he clearly grounded, you know, that, but he just didn't know enough to um, have a, you know, a truly neuroscientifically grounded explanation, although there are a lot of Freudian concepts that have turned out to be very true and very useful still. So that was clear to me. Um, it's been, I would say, strange to me that more people in the mental health field and also more, it's been strange to me that more people in the spiritual fields really have not made use of or really inquired very much at all into what we've learned in the last hundred years mm. about the ways in which our experiences are situated in our biology. And even in explicitly theistic religions, Christianity, let's say things like that, a whole lot of Christian practice, spiritual formation, learning, you know, the cultivation of virtues, the restraint of impulses, forming community, you know, actually walking the talk that Jesus laid out in the Gospels uh, involves psychological processes that are grounded in neurological processes. Why not think a little bit, even in the context of neuroscience as a baby science, for what we might know there? Or in my field, therapists. Uh, here we are trying to help people be less anxious, you know, be less, be more motivated towards sobriety, be less caught up in negative moods. Other than throwing medication at people, there's been very little attention to the underlying neural processes that are relevant, including in, for example, in my case, recognizing that it would really be useful to teach people evidence-based methods for engaging the experiences they're having in therapy or coaching or life in general so that those experiences get internalized more efficiently, faster, to become lasting change inside based mm -hmm. on hardwiring those changes into the nervous system. So it's it's been, it's been weird. And my own hope is that, um, to me, it's, it's very actually consistent with the spirit of Buddhism to ground mind in life, to That's really, true. yeah, to really appreciate that you don't need an MRI or an EEG to become enlightened. Hundreds, thousands of people, maybe millions and millions of people have gone far in their practice without knowing a single thing about a neuron, right? On the other hand, huh, if the underlying causes and conditions of the mind are to be found in the causes and conditions in the brain, why not use what we're learning about the brain to foster beneficial changes there to help our minds and the minds of other people.
So that just seems obvious to me, I guess. Plus, incredibly cool and fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Since you bring it up, I'd love to ask a, a bit of a follow-up question yeah. about that. You've written extensively about how we can rewire the brain. Yeah. Where you um, you quote Dan Siegel in a couple. I, I saw it in uh, Neurodharma yeah. as well as Buddha's brain. Uh, the way he put it was the mind uses the brain to make the mind. Right. So can you talk about how that actually works? Oh, sure. Uh, I think a practical example is, is kind of good. So we start with, hey, what do you, where are your challenges? What's challenging you these days? Whoever you are, right? Are you stressed? Are you anxious? Are you um, enraged about what's happening politically? Uh, are you hooked on cigarettes? You know, do you wish you were more patient with your kids? Uh, you know, what are you, what are you trying to develop? What would be useful for you? And then the key question is, what are you trying to grow inside yourself these days? Trying to be happier, trying to be calmer, more patient, more resilient, more self-worth, more confidence, more skills with your relationships. You know, what are you trying to develop? And then the question becomes, how do we actually develop lasting healing, growth, or even factors of awakening? That's the money question. How do you actually do it? How do you actually do it? How do you grow muscle tissue, right? I'm a long-time rock climber. I've had some injuries. I'm getting physical therapy. I'm getting back into it. How do I grow muscle tissue? How do you grow the good, right? And so the how of that is a simple two-step process in which people routinely forget the second step. So they don't heal or grow or awaken in a lasting way. They have a momentarily pleasant experience that has no lasting value, full stop. So the two steps. First, we must experience whatever we wanna develop. You wanna become happier? Have more experiences of happiness or aspects of it. Gratitude, sense of beauty, wholesome pleasures with friends, have more of those experiences. You wanna feel deep down inside yourself that you're lovable? Or do you wanna feel deep down that you're um, worthy and good and you can afford to speak up and take chances in this life and be pretty confident about things going pretty well? You wanna grow that, well you start with having experiences of that. Which then, key point, must become internalized as a lasting change in your brain for there to be lasting change in your mind. Now that internalization um, happens kind of automatically for negative experiences. You're stressed, you're mad, you're irritated, goes right in. The brain has evolved to do that because that kept our ancestors alive, whether Jurassic Park, the Stone Age, or Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> you know, it worked. The three ages. Yeah, yeah. I see the brain's like Velcro for the bad, Teflon for the good. The negative goes right in. But unless it's a million-dollar moment, we've all had this experience. We feel something, and five minutes later, it's gone. And we, we don't feel it anymore. We can't get back to it, that you know, calm sense we had or that uh, you know, good intention we had or uh, an insight into the world. It just is gone, right? It wasn't learned. It wasn't acquired. So simply, we can help neurons that fire together. We can help them to wire together through very simple ways. You're starting with the experience. You're, you're wanting to internalize. That song is playing in the inner iPod. You can turn on the recorder by 
multiple methods that are that I write about and have evidence based for them. And we've actually published a paper in the Journal of Positive Psychology about this recently that maybe you'll link to in the show notes to the podcast. It's called Learning to Learn from Positive Experiences. People can look it up if they can just sort of hear this now, learning to learn from positive experiences. But three that I use routinely, and any one of the three is good, more the better. First, stay with the experience for a breath or longer. Keep the neurons firing together so they can start to wire together. All right, hang out with it. Don't just change the channel. Stay with it. Don't let other people distract you from your good moments. Stay with it. You're not clinging to it. You're not trying to hold on to it in a bad way. You're just sort of encouraging it to stick around and you're not leaving. <laughs> you're staying with it. Second, feel it in your body. The more that we, we slow down to feel the good in our body, you know, whatever it might be, including, let's say, feeling cared about by another person, appreciated by them maybe, the more we feel it in our body, the more it's gonna leave a neural trace behind. Or third, be aware of what feels good about it, what is rewarding or meaningful about it, because that increases activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain to neurochemical systems, and as their activity increases, so does lasting learning including social, emotional, somatic, motivational, attitudinal, spiritual learning. And so the takeaway really is first, when things are happening in your day that seem beneficial to you, slow down to receive them into yourself. Have the humility to slow down, to receive the gift, to take it in, right? Just in the flow of your day just in the flow of your day. And the more that your life sucks, the more that you're kicked in the teeth by society, discriminated against, mistreated, let down and so forth, the more important it is to grow the good inside yourself. That's the essence of self-reliance, right? That's a mm -hmm. takeaway. Another takeaway is don't ruminate on the negative. Don't just sit there on the hot plate sizzling away because, well, you know, it's, it's what we know. Yeah, it's great to be home again. No. Uh, rumination is not good. You know, dwelling in the negative, what our mind dwells upon becomes what dwells within us mm. increasingly, right? So don't reinforce that negative inside yourself. Doesn't mean bypassing it or overlooking it. It just means don't ruminate on it and, you know, get all caught up in our resentments and self-criticism and regrets. And the third is know what you're trying to grow these days. If your mind is, we're like a garden, what are the flowers you're trying to grow in it? Um, there's no end to weeds. <laughs> we, we can uh, you know, pull the weeds and we can try to help them over time, but really where the action is, is growing more flowers that bear fruit over time. They gradually crowd out the weeds and eventually uproot them. And the more flowers we grow inside the garden of our mind, actually we start to change the soil, which mm. starts out due to mother nature to be very fertile for weeds and kind of stony for flowers. There's a proverb that says that bad farmers grow weeds, good farmers grow crops, great farmers grow soil. And so by repeatedly taking in the good in the ways I've described, you actually can change your brain. So it becomes increasingly sensitive to what's beneficial and useful and wise and wholesome and enjoyable, right? And increasingly uh, equanimous, equanimity to you know anger, hatred, sorrow, anxiety, and shame that may pass through it, but are increasingly unable to sink their roots in and land inside you. Speaking of weeds, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I want to talk to you about politics. <laughs> this is not about marijuana legalization. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, well, the, the imagery that you just used, I'm curious, you know, it would be great if we were all practicing um, some of these, uh, I don't know if disciplines are is the right word, but uh, practicing some of these virtues, if you will, these daily habits of yeah. good, healthy, mental, mentally healthy practices. Uh, not everybody's going to do it. Not everybody is right. doing it, obviously. Are there, are there folks that you identify as weeds that you just have to dispense with and do away with huh. that can't be interacted with? And if so, how do you recognize that? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, First, I mean, we've, we've done this conversation, you know, because we're, we're all into this stuff. So we've done it at a pretty high level, right? Um, and weaving together, you know, religion and um, enlightenment and so, you know, some pretty deep stuff. For me, the takeaway is life is hard. And for some people, it's really hard. For everybody, it's hard some of the time. For some, a lot of people, it's really hard all the time. And it's a little bit like, well, you're going on a journey every day and you're going every life. What's in your backpack? You know, what are you carrying with you? Uh, is there determination? Is there grit? Is there um, feeling of personal worth? Uh, are you skillful? Do you know how to handle different things? Do you know how to handle your mind? You know, are you skillful with your own thoughts and feelings and impulses? Hardcore, hardcore stuff. And the harder the harder your life is, the more we need these inner strengths of various kinds. And so for me, anyone um, can develop inner strengths for their day and their year and their, their life altogether. And what you and I have talked about is the simple positive neuroplasticity of that, the simple how of actually growing whatever it is you want to develop inside yourself. That's really for everybody, including lots and lots of people who just have no interest in, it's not relevant to them, you know, the upper reaches of human potential. They're just trying to deal with the swamp, you know, that they're in today. But the more you're in the, the pit, the more important it is, old school, to grow strengths inside. So I mean, I mean that's really the frame. That's really what, you know, is the heart of the matter. It's for really everybody. Mm. Well, I, I do want to ask you about the 2100 project, but I feel like I've been a bad dad and I've monopolized a lot of this conversation. Savannah, what, what have I, uh, what, what did you have on your mind to, to ask? Well, I still want to get to your question. Oh, sorry. I want to get to you, Savannah, <laughs> first. Okay. Oh, no, honestly, I'm, I'm just intently listening. I don't quite have a question to come up with yet. <laughs> okay. right. Well, do you know the metaphor about the wolf of hate and the wolf of love? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's in Buddha's brain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's classic. And um, yeah, Billy Graham made up that the Cherokees had that fable and blah, blah. But if you just take it on the face of it, you know, if you hate the wolf of hate, you just feed it. Mm. So um, I think it's important to be really clear eyed about the two fundamental principles of any good relationship, whether it's father-daughter, uh, if you accept the kind of languaging there, you know, or people uh, in a company or people in a neighborhood or people in a country, what are the basics? What do we teach our kids? Tell the truth, play fair, <laughs> right? 
And Pretty straightforward, yeah. Yeah, and if you just think in ordinary life, if we go see you know, a, a car mechanic, like my car needs some repairs right now, literally, and I count on my mechanic to tell me the truth and to play fair. He counts on me to do the same thing. You know, he, he does the work, I pay him. I'm honest about uh, you know, that I have a functioning credit card. You know, he's honest about what my car really needs. It's straightforward. Uh, we work with people in a company. We expect this from our children. But there's this one area in life where somehow we give people a pass who lie and cheat. Politics. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So in our evolution, which is really interesting, uh, in every primate species but ours, there is no altruism. Lying and cheating are commonplace. And the alphas dominate the betas, and that's how the orangutans and the gorillas and the chimpanzees organize their social life. But early humans and hominids, hominids and early humans, developed caring and sharing, developed you know, compassion and justice, right? Pl tell the truth, play fair, uh, look out for each other. Uh, we developed that uniquely in our species um, as the basis of social life, but we did it in small hunter-gatherer bands. And when agriculture developed that allowed surpluses that enabled large groups, towns, cities, empires, now 8 billion people, it was Game of Thrones, literally, for the last 10,000 years. And so to me, it's critically important to uh, name, shame, and punish those who violate those two fundamental principles of telling the truth and playing fair, and to be serious about it to be really serious about it because what enabled our ancestors, hominid and hunter-gatherer human, to become compassionate and caring and just in their dealings with each other is that they could call out and punish freeloaders. Mm. They'd kick them out of the tribe. They would no longer share their bananas with them. They would, you know, they would develop a negative reputation. They couldn't get away with it because they were stuck with the same 50 people their whole lives, right? That's unfortunately been lost in big society. So for me, it's really important to see clearly those who operate in bad faith, those who think that it's just fine to, to lie and to cheat. I mean, I, that would be a starter for me and to do everything we can to vote them out of office, to confront them. The issue is not, I, I think the fundamental divide of our time politically is not between left and right. You know, I actually was a registered libertarian for many years, you know, there's a lot about, um, market forces and, um, you know, individual autonomy and standing up against tyranny that, you know, is very, very, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of that. So, you know, I, it, the issue is not for me conservative liberal, it's commitment to telling the truth and playing fair in our politics or not. And what we've seen obviously in the Republican party in ways that have appalled many people, including I saw a recent guest of yours, Rick Wilson, diehard Republicans, you know, bone deep, Mitt Romney, of all people who are appalled at the willingness of basically the authoritarian white you know, nationalist and I, I'm sorry to say evangelical wing of the Republican Party that is perfectly fine with an authoritarian regime that would have appalled the founding fathers. Yeah, yeah, they, a lot of folks have justified uh, playing dirty Mm -hmm. uh, and lying because a primary focus is folks who are outside of a particular group mm -hmm. or a particular media ecosystem or a yeah. particular political party 
uh, are the enemy. Yeah. And in order to defeat the enemy, or as Trump would put it in his 2020 campaign, he's fighting for us. All things are okay. Playing unfair, telling, continuing to tell lies yeah. at an unprecedented volume. Uh, I did want to point out, though, uh, there's a great article you, you shared with me. It's called Restoring Healthy Politics in the Human Tribe of the 21st Century, uh, published on the 15th of uh, just this February, 2022. Uh, a quote that I'll, I'll take from there and then let you comment on it. Humans are best able to govern themselves when the truth is readily apparent to all. The welfare of the few is tied to the welfare of the many and leaders bear the consequences of their actions. So can you tell us a little bit more about the 2100 Project? Oh, thank you. So I wrote that and I'm not a professional political scientist uh, or anthropologist or historian, but it just seems clear to me that, you know, when our, when people live together in hunter-gatherer bands, what enables them to, you know, have good politics, which means sharing resources, regulating power, uh, protecting the most vulnerable among us. In those bands, you know, there was common truth, common welfare, and common justice. Because you're living together all the time, right? How do we restore common truth, common welfare, and common justice? To me, that's the that's the question we face in the 21st century. And so, uh, myself kind of tied maybe to the older I get, the matter I get. <laughs> I just think it's time to think big, and I'm kind of a little bit like I'm just sort of perplexed that more people are not really engaging what we're learning about the brain in their practices with the mind. In much the same way, I'm really perplexed why I'll just say liberals broadly, progressives broadly, are thinking so small and seem to have lost their nerve and are not willing to really look realistically ambitiously at how the world could be in the life of our grandchildren. Like you, Savannah, will hopefully see the end of the century. If, I don't know if my kids will, but if they ever have kids, I think their kids will, right? I don't think you or I, you know, probably, uh, Corey, will see the end of the century, although who knows, you know? <laughs> Elon Musk may figure out something else. <laughs> right. I have no idea. <laughs> right. Well, he ruins Twitter. But anyway, <laughs> moving on from that, uh, you know, uh, how could it be? So I just think it's really important to think big, to think big and to, for the, frankly, for the betas to stand up to the alphas. You know, when we were in small bands, the betas could stand up to the alphas, but now the alphas are picking us off. If you want to understand human politics the last 10,000 years, watch Game of Thrones. You know, cover your eyes when, if it gets too bloody, right? The Red Wedding, that's where I checked out. Oh, but. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it's real, it's horrible. Life's been terrible uh, for the many, for most of human history. And it still is terrible for the many around the world. It's sweet for the few, it's okay for some, me and among them, and it really sucks for the many. What can we do about that? So I think thinking big is really important. And I'll, I'll just name a couple of things. Like ask yourself, well, let's say if we say, over the next 78 years, by the end of the century, half the world is living in a more or less functioning democracy rather than the current roughly one in eight. Hmm. All right. Let's say also by the end of the century, 
there's universal access to education through high school for all children, not just some boys. Like if you, Savannah, were growing up in Pakistan or many other places around the world, your access to a full education would be restricted, right? For all kinds of reasons. Like that's totally horrible, right? So just take that as entry level. Oh, I'll, I'll throw in something else just for fun. Let's cap global warming at quote unquote, just three degrees Fahrenheit, one and a half degrees centigrade, which is the minimum it's going to be. But let's not let it get any worse. We're stuck with that much average worldwide, which itself will kill millions and millions of people in all kinds of ways. Hopefully not a billion or more, but lots. But still, let's try that. And let's not have any nuclear wars. There it Kind of seems like a low bar, right? Yeah. Isn't that weird? They're yeah. just saying that. Half the people in the world live in a functioning democracy. Girls have access to an education through high school. We cap global warming and we don't freaking blow up the northern hemisphere of this planet in a thermonuclear exchange. Kind of basic. And and in the process of nuclear war, kill off, you know, several billion people, probably. But then on the other hand, as soon as I say it, you ask yourself, what the heck would it take to accomplish that seemingly low bar? Like, duh, it ought to be that way, you know? And then it just seems clear to me we got our work cut out. I think there are multiple kinds of answers to what would help that, that fairly ambitiously realistic result to occur. I'm fine with people who want to have bigger goals than that, but just doing that over the next 78 years would change the course of history. It'd be unprecedented over the last 10,000 years. We've never seen anything like it. So what would it actually take to accomplish that scale of result? To me, clearly, we have to scale up the interventions. We have to scale up the resources to be commensurate with the scale of the change that we're aiming for and the scale of the forces of wealth and power that would resist that kind of change strenuously. Right? We have to scale up. And how do we actually do that? So I have some notions about the how to do that. I'm sure there are other people who've been really, who have other notions, smarter notions and all the rest of that. One of the things I'm immediately working on is the development of a global compassion coalition that will be established and will become, I think, a force for good in the world that will be an overarching big tent to include uh, thousands, hopefully millions of individuals and organizations worldwide who can um, agree that compassion and justice should be the basis, should be the foundation of all human societies. That's the, that's the entry level you know, commitment in that big tent. And there are other things too that might make a big difference. But I think we should think big and I think we have to band together. You know, as a, one of the founding fathers, I'll finish on this one. Thanks for letting me rant here. Sure. Like, I'm just a guy at the end of the bar, but, you know, I think I'm on to something. <laughs> um, one of the founding fathers apparently said, gentlemen, after they signed the Declaration of Independence, where they were basically rebelling against the king of England, you know, it's a treason, death sentence. They said, gentlemen, and they were all men, gentlemen, we must all hang together now or we shall all hang separately. Yeah, I think that was Ben Franklin, if I if I remember correctly. I have no idea. I'll take your I'll take your point. Yeah. What do you think? What both of you? I think I hope that my sort of generation, my age group will pleasantly surprise both of you, your age groups. I hope. 
um, based on the people that I know, even people in my age group that I actively dislike still seem to have that drive because all of us see so very clearly, especially after these last three years, that things must change. It is not optional. Um, at least for us, for our, for my generation, it is not optional. We're not, I mean, you know, ideally, hopefully, uh, the majority of us will be here 50 years from now. And so we will have to live with the consequences of the thousands of years of our ancestors, good, bad, and neutral. Um, and I know I personally feel quite fired up about it and my peer, all, most of my peers do as well. Um, I tend to the as far as actions to take, I tend to lean on the side uh, or I tend to do similar things that you do, Rick, um, as in interacting with people on a very personal level and seeing how we can foster that yeah. equanimity and a sense of returning back home as I might call it the core self. I do a lot of internal mm-hmm. family system work, which you might be. Oh, yeah. You might be aware of. Um, I'm Great absolutely stuff. obsessed. Um yeah. But, you know, I do a lot of work on a personal level there. And even when I don't talk about it with my peers, I see how it does affect them. My own, my own personal equanimity and remaining centered in the core self affects them and allows their nervous systems to reprogram in a really subtle way. So that's kind of one pretty tangible thing, at least in my opinion. And I feel that since it's something that we can all do personally internally, it is a lot, it's accessible to everybody, essentially, you know, in very small ways. So yeah. yeah what about you, dad? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting how something as fundamental as breathing is connected to something as big and ambitious as what you're describing the 2100 project. And not to be too far out there, but I forget if it was, I forget if it was something that I was reading, a guided meditation that I was reading in, in neurodharma, or if it was something I was listening to, but it's simply like literally breathing. Like I'm breathing in the oxygen that plant life around me is yeah. offering up for my yeah. benefit. And I'm exhaling. Uh, what is, what, what do we exhale again? It's not oxygen. Carbon dioxide. Thank yeah. you. Carbon dioxide. Um, that hopefully they're benefiting from. So it's yeah. it's this exchange, it's this connection that we're yeah. literally all in it together. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I no, I have a lot of thoughts about it. I, I I do think that we're we're up against it though. We're up against these other tendencies that we have, and as you describe, uh, tendencies from how we've evolved. Yeah, uh, that a, a tendency towards territorialism in all kinds of costumes, you know, territorials, not just in terms of, hey, uh, my political party and your political party, but in terms of science, you know, I'm really committed to this scientific practice, this scientific hypothesis. And if something else competes with it, I'm very territorial. I want to protect it. I don't Mm -hmm. want to risk the possibility that my hypothesis is wrong or my hypothesis needs to evolve. And so much of what we do is based on these more primitive tendencies that I think, I think the practices that I'm just now, I'm like the white belt of white belts in, in, in uh, meditation, but I think just breathing, just understanding and focusing on 
uh, loving compassion, on our connectedness. Uh, these things, I think, are very concrete, practical helps. Uh, I'm starting to sound like an evangelical meditation practicer or something. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> well, I know we're finishing up. I know we're finishing up. And I, I wanted to say first to you, Savannah, that I would not be surprised if you and your generation had had it up to here. We're fed up and we're intolerant of anything except sweeping change. I, I think that's true. And it frankly has also really puzzled me that young people who will most inherit over the longest period of time, the negative consequences of where the world, where the world is and where it's going are the least engaged in politics. Mm. They have the lowest voting rates, they have the lowest information, they're the most checked out. And so I think that uh, if there was basically one thing I could do, just think back to the election of 2016, right? Trump won by 78,000 votes in three states. That was the margin of victory. And you can think about how many precincts there were, how many counties there were, in which if three young people had just gone to the polls and probably two out of three of them had voted Democrat, Trump would not have been in the White House and we would have not have had the next four years. Um, just that. I mean, it can be really striking. I mean, the margins are so thin. So youth turnout to me mm. is such a huge, such a huge variable. It, um, it is critical. And even though uh, we live in a uh, very purple district and I tend to be conservative, uh, fiscally, socially libertarian, we have someone who voted to overturn our democracy. Yeah. You know, and he won by 333 votes in this district. Our U.S. congressman won by 300, less than one tenth of one percent. Exactly right. The margins are so thin. And then yeah. when you think about the playing fields tilted, I mean, I accept the fact that our so our democratic republic is unfairly tilted through voter disenfranchisement, gerrymandering, and just the structure at the federal level of the of the Senate in which you have these rural states with very few people that are constructed essentially when they were made in the late 1800s to you know, preserve Republican majorities. It's unfair, but that said, the scope of the unfairness depends on your district, but it's on the order of one to 7%. Well, anytime there's a groundswell of voting, including youth voting, can overcome that and then rewrite the, the laws, restart appointing federal judges who then become Supreme Court justices and you just keep banging away at it, you know, hopefully getting DC and Puerto Rico as states, just that would tend to balance the playing field and give them representation. We're taxing them without representation. Mm. You know? Anyway, that's two cents there. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been great to talk with you both. And uh well, tell us before before we wrap up, how can we find more information about you, your writing, Being Well, the podcast uh, that you do with Forrest, and all the great work that you're doing? Ah, oh, sweet. Well, I think first just Google my name, Rick Hansen, S-O-N, and rickhansen.net. It's a great hub. The podcast is Being Well. It's very cool to do this, as you know, both of you maybe. Forrest says it's cool. I'll take his word for it. I don't probe too deeply. <laughs> I hope he's right. <laughs> and I know it's cool for me to do it with our son. Uh, so I would say that. And the thing I would also just kind of say, especially to you, Savannah, is um, there are things a person can do that if they just stick with them 
and they give it a few years, can actually build to something really big over time. And um, I look back on my own kind of swerving uh, in my 20s, teens and 20s, and even 30s, and I think there's something to really appreciate that small steps add, add up to something big, you know? And um, I lost my nerve in my 20s, I think, in some ways, and I kind of regained it later on in life. And uh, so I think it's important to not lose our nerve, and I'm saying this generally, you know, as a general comment, and to really think about what is it that I, whoever I is, whoever one is, what is it that I really want to contribute in this world? And what is it that I want to grow inside myself a little bit more every day? And then just kind of keep going, keep going. That can really add up to something big. Wow. That's terrific. I, I so appreciate having the privilege of spending some time with you, especially with my, my eldest, Savannah. <laughs> and Savannah, it's really cool hanging out with you too, of course. Uh, Rick, really great getting to know you better. I'm so grateful for you being here. Same here. Really, seriously. Yeah, same, same here. Same here, Kendra. <laughs> same tribe. Yeah. yeah. That's great. You could, you know, you could finish my little shtick. Maybe you, you won't. You don't have to. But Neil Young, rocking in the free world. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Great to see you. Thanks again. Thank Rick. You know, so hey, much. Savannah, you take care. Keep your father on the good path. You're doing well. <laughs> you Thank know. you. It's good. Thanks bye. so much. Have All a right, good bye one, bye. Rick. Yeah, you take care. All right. That was awesome. That was awesome. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. And apparently we have even cooler co-hosts than ever. So yeah, <laughs> you definitely want to recommend us to a friend. Uh, we are found at politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. You can support us through our, uh, so you can support our program through the patron app on our site. And we are also on Patreon. Wait, I got to tell you what the Patreon is. Patreon.com slash politics and religion. Patreon.com slash politics and religion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some breathing. <laughs> yeah, with some breathing. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, and have a great week. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>